we support a church in Burkina Faso, West Africa, where we're training pastors on how to teach verse by verse through books of the Bible. In this area of Africa, most of the people in that country don't know how to read or write, so they're dependent upon their pastor for their spiritual enrichment and maturity. Uh, And we have been partnering with them for the last nine or ten years, primary through our contact, Marcel, who runs the Bible College, who's the local there, and we send them out to plant churches after three years into unreached people groups or in persecuted areas, places like on the border of Mali and Niger, Benin, Ivory Coast, all of these countries, most of them are not restful countries, they're not peaceful countries, they're in opposition towards the gospel. And so we want to partner and invest, and we're thankful for your tithes and offerings that help support them. About six years ago, I was scheduled to go over there into Burkina Faso. We would usually go over once or twice a year, bring in about 200 pastors, uh, teach through an entire book of the Bible for six or eight hours a day for about a week and a half, and then they would take that back to their churches, and they would teach it through uh, their churches. Well, this particular trip uh, ended up getting canceled. Thank goodness to the sovereignty of God, we moved it because there were some things going on in that country, and we're so grateful that we did because when we were supposed to be there, We would have gone to this restaurant in West Africa, which has three essentials that every American needs, air conditioning, Wi-Fi, and hamburgers. (laughs) Now, we're so grateful that we didn't end up going there because that place was hit that night with terrorist attacks because they thought Christians would be there and they would oppose the work that God wanted to do. About six months ago, I was FaceTiming with... uh, our contact over there, Marcel, and he had about nine of the pastors that we support that were on the screen, and I was encouraging them, checking in on them, just seeing the work that was going on there. And uh, in the middle of the conversation, he stops the conversation and tells me that each one of those nine guys have physically suffered for the sake of the gospel. Over half of them have been beaten for the sake of the gospel. Over half of them have lost land, had their church burned, or their harvest destroyed, which was their means of income. And the other half of them have lost property or land despite doing what is good. And here they are suffering for what is doing good. And we come to a section in Peter's letter here that we are called to pursue what is good, to be passionate about doing what's good, but that may mean that we may suffer because of it. That the reality of being a Jesus follower is we may suffer because of our relationship with Jesus or for doing good. And for the rest of Peter's letter, he focuses in on this theology of Christian suffering, something that we don't love to talk about in the American church, but is crucial because it's talked about quite a bit in the scriptures. And so we're going to spend the rest of the summer unpacking this idea and this theology. But for our time this morning, we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, where we're going to see suffering for doing good. And what he starts off with in verse 13 is a passion for doing what is good. It says this, now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? So he starts off with this rhetorical question. Most of the time, if you do what is good, you're not going to be harmed because of that. But the reality is, is Peter's calling you and I as Jesus followers to pursue goodness in our world around us. This means that we should have lifestyles that are characterized by generosity, that we should be generous with our money, we should be generous with our possessions, we should be generous with our time and going out of our way to model this form of goodness. 
We are to be people that are unselfish, unselfish with our time, uh, serving other people, putting other people's needs before our own, that we would be a people that are sacrificial in our uh, duties, that we would be people, goodness is also characterized by this idea of kindness, that we would be people that have a disposition of kindness in the face of opposition, that we may be able to be uh, an example or a witness. So we would be generous with our words, our, our possessions, and our actions. That this type of goodness would be characterized by this idea of thoughtfulness, that we would be thoughtful in our relationship with other people, that we would put ourselves in their shoes, seeing things from their perspective, having uh, compassion and, and this idea here. Now, this type of lifestyle makes it really, really hard to argue with, and we should all strive to live this out. We should all strive to be generous people. We should all strive to be kind. We should all be, strive to be sacrificial, and we all should strive to be thoughtful. For our God himself is called a good God. Psalm chapter 34 says this, taste and see that the Lord is good. You see, God models this idea of thoughtfulness. He models this idea of uh, generosity. He models this idea of kindness. He models this idea of being sacrificial. And this is who our God is, and therefore we should strive to be good in and of ourselves. But he doesn't just say be apathetic in your goodness or be passive, passivity in our goodness. He calls us to be zealous in goodness. We are called to be passionate in our goodness. And passion is often caught, not taught. Like if you're around somebody who is passionate about something, you want to be around them. You want to spend time with them. That's this picture here. In the New Testament, there was a political party of Jewish patriots called the Zealots. They pledged to free the Jews from all foreign rule by whatever extreme measure. If it meant lying, they would lie. If it meant stealing, they would steal. If it even meant assassinating somebody, they would do so. They deemed it necessary, even if it resulted in their own death. And Peter knew this group and had been friends with Simon the Zealot, who was one of the 12, and he's calling us to have this type of passion, this type of devotion, no matter what else, to be focused in on doing good. You see... In Eugene, we love our ducks. We are passionate about our ducks. We fly flags outside of our cars on game day. We fly duck flags outside of our house. We buy the latest duck gear. We look for the latest trend in what uniform they're going to wear. We buy a bigger screen TV, and we even yell and scream at the TV, thinking we're going to make that big of a difference in a game. We will show up to a game, we will join with the rest of the crowd, and we will scream, and we will yell, and the next day we'll wake up with a headache, we won't have our voice, because we are passionate about our ducks. Peter is saying here, let that level of passion, let that level of devotion bleed over into you doing good. You being thoughtful, you being kind, you being generous towards others. And can you imagine what our world would look like? Can you imagine what our community would look like? Could you imagine what your workforce would look like if we had this level of passion, this level of zeal for doing what is good? I, uh, in Connect, every time I teach Connect, which is for anybody new at Ecclesia, we do it first Sunday of every month, and we talk about our values. And one of our values is love one another. And in it, I talk about how we want to be a place that allows people to wrestle with what we believe in, but is jealous for how we treat one another. 
right? They can wrestle with the fact that we believe in a God who uh, was perfect and holy and came and died a sinful death for sinful people so that he could uh, take on our sin and we could take on his righteousness and through the resurrection of Jesus have faith in him. And they could wrestle with that truth and other truths in scripture, yet they're jealous for this reality that we love one another, we're, we're, they're envious of how we treat one another, and that is this picture of this tension of walking in truth and loving one another. But he ends this idea of this rhetorical question in verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? So usually, if you live out this type of lifestyle, and usually, if you are good, being generous, uh, being thoughtful, being kind, being sacrificial, usually you'll be rewarded for that in society. But Peter understands that in some occasions, in some times, this will not always be the case. But you may be punished instead of rewarded for doing good. And Peter knew that some of his readers then, some of his readers today, would experience this. And so he needed to dive into this topic that sometimes we may suffer because of doing good or despite of doing good. And so as we see verse 14, as he unpacks this idea further, we might suffer for doing good. We might suffer for doing good. He starts off with this. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed have no fear of them, nor be troubled. So he recognizes that this is a possibility, that you could be doing something good and you may suffer because of it. But there's another type of suffering he also unpacks in verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So there's two types of suffering that you endure, whether you're doing it for good or you're doing it for evil. Let me unpack this idea of suffering because of evil. 1 Peter chapter 4, chapter 4, verse 15 says, let, uh, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler, right? So we may suffer because we're murdered somebody and we have to live with the consequences because of that. Or you may be stealing something from a business, from your employer, from a grocery store, all of those types of things, stealing somebody's possession, and you may suffer the consequences of that an evildoer or a meddler, getting involved in people's business when you don't, deserve or don't have the right to be involved in that and you're trying to negatively influence them. This is an example of suffering for doing evil. He draws that picture, but the bulk of our passage this morning is talking about suffering for doing good. Suffering for doing good. He says, for righteousness sake. And many in the New Testament, including Peter's readers, suffered. And we too shouldn't be surprised or afraid if suffering comes. He even uses the term God's will there. Because the reality is, is that just because you follow Jesus doesn't mean that you are gonna be immune from suffering. Just because you choose to have a relationship with Jesus doesn't mean that you're gonna have the absence of suffering. And what he unpacks here is in contrast to some circles of Christianity that try and teach that if you become a Jesus follower, you're going to be healthy, you're going to be wealthy, and you're going to be wise. And if you do that, this easy believism just ushers you into God's kingdom. But that is a foreign concept in the New Testament and is a foreign concept in the lives of many people that we look up to in scriptures. For example, Peter, who we're reading about right now, who's writing this, he was crucified upside down. And guess what he was doing? Advancing the gospel, and that's a good thing. So he's suffering despite that. 
Apostle Paul, who wrote a lot of the New Testament, he was shipwrecked, persecuted, flogged, spit upon, and yet he was doing good and yet suffered because of it. And look at the life of Jesus. Jesus himself suffered on the cross while he was doing good, feeding the sick, taking care of the the homeless, uh, loving children, welcoming them in, healing the sick. All of these things were examples, and yet he suffered for doing this level of goodness. So who are we to say that we would be immune or different than them? And this may become a reality in some of our lives that we may endure suffering. Now, that suffering doesn't just mean persecution. That could be you're doing good, you're serving your community, you're serving your church, and then you're hit with cancer. And that could be a reality in your life. God, why, why am I going through this? Why is this happening to me? How could this be? I'm, I'm doing this for you. Or you could be running for office, you're going for the promotion, you're desiring to do good in your city, in your community, and you discover that a loved one passed away way too early at way too young of an age. Or you desire to have a family, you desire to have a child, and you're serving God's church, you're making a difference in this community, you're discipling people, mentoring people, evangelizing, and yet you have a miscarriage. You may lose property, your job, and face that level of suffering for doing good. And the reality is that just because we follow Jesus doesn't make us immune from suffering. It is a reality of living in a sinful, fallen, evil world that you and I may endure that. So he continues on in verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Look at that promise you're given. You will be blessed. Now, that is not what I expected Peter to say when he's talking about this topic of suffering, that you are promised a blessing. You're promised to be filled with joy. You're promised to be happy. Now, before you tune me out, before you uh, close the live stream, before you turn off the podcast, I want to unpack blessing here because you're like, I'm going through immense amounts of suffering and I don't feel happy and I don't feel like joy in the midst of that, so this definitely doesn't relate to me. But let's unpack this a little bit. What this is focusing on is not the effects of suffering that cause the happiness, but more the privilege or the honor. Not the effects of suffering, but more of the privilege or the honor. I'll give you an example. In the New Testament, Luke chapter 1, verse 42. Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, who is related to... Uh, Jesus' mom, Mary, says this about Mary. Blessed are you among women. Mary, Jesus' mom, it was a privilege for Jesus to be her child, to be her son. Of all the Jewish women, even a teenager, here she is with this God-given task to be his mom, to raise him, to nurture him, to, uh, to feed him, to raise him up as God had entrusted him uh, or entrusted her with this privilege and this honor. Fast forward one chapter, there's this prophecy spoken over Mary in Luke chapter 2, verse 35, which says, Mary's heart would be pierced by many sorrows. So she's doing what is good. She is raising God's son. She is raising him up in the ways of the Lord. She is bringing him to the temple. Those are all good things. And yet it says that she would be pierced by many 
sorrows. Speaking of the fact that Jesus would die on the cross, and his mom is standing there at the foot of that cross, watching her son bleed to death for doing nothing wrong, for uh, only doing what is right, for being righteous before God, and yet they crucified him. And was that a happy day? Absolutely, it was not. She was filled with deep sorrow and deep hardship as he took his final breath. And this was not a happy moment in her life, but she considered it a privilege and an honor to be Jesus' mom. It was an honor for her to take that position in his life and to raise him that she felt a privilege that God would entrust her with this task. And if this becomes a part of our story, we too are blessed because we have the unwanted, uncomfortable privilege of sharing in Christ's suffering. Sure, it's not wanted. Sure, it's uncomfortable. But it is a privilege because we get to relate to Christ in this way, right? We sing songs like, make me more like Jesus. Make me more loving. Make me more compassionate. Make me more kind. Make me suffer. Don't know about that one. But this is not a foreign concept in the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10 says this, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself, what does he promise you? Restore you, confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you. It means he's not going to leave you in your suffering alone. He's not going to leave you by yourself. He's going to get close to you. He's going to help you, and he's going to help you endure through this. Uh, one book to the left, the book of James. Turn to the left in your Bible. If you're in Hebrews, you've gone too far. James chapter 1, verse 2. Get those pages turning. I know it's hot in here. <clears throat> Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kind. For you know that the testing of your faith, what does it produce? Steadfastness, endurance, perseverance is the idea. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect or mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Are you going to be perfect through suffering? Absolutely not. Are you going to mature in your suffering? Absolutely, if you endure, if you persevere, and you represent Christ in this way. Look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 12, a few pages further left in your Bible. Second Corinthians 12, verse 10. Paul says this, for the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insult, hardship, persecution, and calamity. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Is that easy to believeism? Is Paul getting healthy, wealthy, and wise there? Absolutely not. He's enduring insults, hardship, persecution, and yet he recognizes that in his cracks, in his frailty, in his humanity, that God's strength upholds them and helps him. Look with me at one more, Matthew chapter 5. First book in the New Testament. Let's look at the words of Jesus here, verse 10. Matthew chapter 5, verse 10 through 12. Blessed are those, this is what Jesus says, who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
What is he promising you here? What is he promising you if you're suffering for doing good, if you're being persecuted for your faith, that you inherit God's kingdom, that you are not left here, that this is a byproduct of your inheritance in God's kingdom. And then he links you back to the prophets. That oftentimes when we go through suffering for doing good, we think we're alone and we're by ourselves. And he says, no, look at the prophets here. The prophets suffered. And then he says, and look at, look at the apostles. They suffered. And look at Jesus. And he suffered. So you're not alone. You fit into the story of history with men and women who suffered because of me. And yet you, you get to identify with it. And it's this privilege that you get to be a part of. You're not alone. You're not the only one suffering. There are people today suffering for doing good. There's people in this church who are suffering for doing good. There's people in history past that have suffered for doing good for God's kingdom. You're not alone. Despite what your social media thread says, despite what you see other people's lives look like, the enemy wants to isolate you and make you feel alone to get you to forsake God's church and to forsake your relationship with Christ. And Peter understands that this is not our normal response. Peter understands that this is not uh, how we are naturally going to do, that we're not going to approach suffering for righteousness' sake and say, man, I'm blessed. What does he say next? Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. This command is not a natural response for us. Don't be afraid. Yeah, right. I'm going to be afraid. That's our natural response. That's how we're going to do it. And what he recognizes here is our natural response is become afraid because as Americans, we love comfort and we love freedom. And neither one of those are promised in Scripture. The only freedom we are promised in Scripture is freedom in Christ. And the reality here is that our natural response is going to be either to freeze, like we're a deer in the headlight, and we think, okay, if I just stay here and stay really, really still, they're not going to see me and they're just going to go right on past me. But that's not true. For others of us, we think, "Uh uh-oh, cut and run. I'm going to run. Forsake my relationship with Christ. Run away. This is too hard. I can't endure. I'm going to run away from God's church. I'm going to run away from Christ. And that's going to be our natural response. For those of us, we want to fight. We're a warrior. This is fighting words. These are my freedoms. These are my comforts. And I'm going to fight for them. What does he say? Don't be afraid. Don't be filled with fear. Don't be troubled. This is the picture that he gives us. And the reality is, we love our comforts and we love our freedoms. And I'm the biggest fan of both of those. But as I read the New Testament, neither one of these are promised to us. Which is a a scary reality. And they're gifts that we get in this country. They're, They're opportunities we get to take Uh, possession of and enjoy, but if they disappear, do we still remain devoted to Christ? And that's a sobering thought and reality. Now, I love my comfort. You better believe I'm grateful for my air conditioner this week. I am not so grateful for the lack of air conditioning in here. But do I still pursue Christ despite not having those gifts? Do I still pursue Christ if my freedoms disappear? And that is the test that we are going to face. So how do we not get distracted by our fear? How do we not allow our fear to uh, paralyze us? Peter gives us three ways. 
three ways to endure our suffering. Three ways that you and I can endure suffering together in verses 15 and 16. The first one is seen in verse 15. We need to have a strong devotion to Christ. But in your heart, honor Christ the Lord as holy. So we need to have a strong devotion to Christ. The only way we are going to get through suffering, to endure suffering, is our devotion to Christ. And we want to honor him. We want to make him the priority. Because when comfort disappears, when freedom disappears, when uh, these other gifts that we have in this country disappears, our devotion to Christ is what's going to keep us on the straight and narrow. And our eyes fixed upon the author and finish of our faith is what's going to help us. And when we honor Christ, we affirm our submission to his control and his guidance in our life. You see, when suffering comes in, all of a sudden we recognize how little control we actually have, and so we're grasping at air, thinking we're going to control things, and in reality we have absolutely no control, and we need to depend upon his guidance to see us through, even if it means suffering. But notice what he says, in our hearts. Now this concept is both an intellectual faith and also an emotional faith. Right? For us, we don't play in this tension very often. We are really, really prone to an intellectual faith. I love to learn. I love to think. I love to figure out tough truths. I love to wrestle with God's word. And it's all mental. It's all in my mind. This is how my, my faith works. For others of us, we're over in this camp and we're passionate about our emotional faith. We love to come into this place we love that the band is rocking. We love to get caught up into worship. Steve is one of the most passionate individuals we've ever seen, and he inspires us. He makes us passionate for Jesus, and it makes us feel really, really good. Here's the problem with that. When suffering enters the picture, when we walk out these doors, do we still pursue Christ? Do we still have a strong devotion to him? And that's the question that we are left with. Because if our faith is simply emotional, those emotions disappear, those feelings disappear, but do we persevere and endure still fulfilling God's calling of doing good in this world? And if we're simply devoted to an intellectual faith, it's just theoretical, and when we're challenged to, uh, to live the truths that we intellectually believe out, if we don't live those things out, then we become hypocritical, which can be damaging as well. So we need to make both a priority. Both need to live in this tension that we need to have an intellectual faith that is reason and that is learning the scriptures and an emotional faith that devotes our affections towards Christ together. And what he says is a strong devotion for Christ will make you holy. It will make you set apart. It will cause you to look differently because Suffering is not just for the Jesus follower. Suffering is a byproduct of living in a fallen world, and both those who don't know Jesus and those who do know Jesus may suffer as well. And he's calling us to be holy, to be set apart. You see, uh, this last week I did a wedding up in Portland. And at those weddings, I don't just wear casual clothes. I'm a fairly casual individual. You'll usually see me in jeans and a T-shirt or shorts and a T-shirt. Uh, but on rare occasions you'll see me be set apart in the sense that I'm wearing a suit. Now, in my closet, on the left side of my closet, is my jeans, my t-shirts, uh, my collared shirts, and then set apart for really special occasions is this suit. These clothes over here get washed in the washing machine and the dryer. This suit over here, it goes to the dry cleaner. 
These clothes over here just hang in my closet. This suit over here gets put in a suit bag, gets zipped up, it's protected, and it only comes out on special occasions. It's set apart. And those two special occasions are if you're getting married and you're getting buried. <laughs> That's it. That's what Peter's talking about, that it would be, we would look different. It would come out in special occasions, that it would, that it would separate us from who uh, the world sees us to be, and that it would be an attraction to say, why are they different? Why do they act different? Why do they live differently? A strong devotion to Christ will be attractive towards those who don't know Christ. Number two, verse 15 also says this. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So what's the second way we're called to endure our suffering? It's a readiness to defend our faith. It's this idea that we are called to defend our faith. It's where we get the word apology, which is where we get the word apologetics, which is a whole branch of theology that trains us and prepares us to be able to defend our faith. So the question is, is how are you defending your faith? Because this is not just reserved for Bible college teachers. This is not just reserved for pastors. And it's not just reserved for like school Bible or mentors. This is a call to all of us to be preparing ourselves to defend our faith. So when your coworker walks up to you on Friday and says, what are you doing this weekend? And you tell him you're going to go to a really hot church in a gym. <laughs> and they say, why do you go to church? Why do you follow Jesus? Are you prepared to give those answers? Or your kids are asking you questions about your faith. Are you prepared to give them those answers and to respond? A couple years ago, I remember we were doing a kitchen remodel. We had this installer come in to install some cabinets. And uh, I had been told by the cabinet guy that he was a Jehovah's Witness. So a Jehovah's Witness is different than Christianity. And they believe Jesus is a God, not the God. Uh, and they interpret scripture a lot differently than us. So my then three-year-old walks up to me while I'm talking to this guy in my kitchen. And he says, Dad, are Jesus and God the same thing? Was I defend, ready to defend my faith after I swallowed my pride and looked at that guy and tried to explain the Trinity and the gospel to him? And that guy was very gracious because he did not agree with me. Um, but that's the reality. Like We, we are going to be confronted with this reality to defend our faith, and how we defend our faith matters. Uh, I think of uh, we as Ecclesia desire to be a place that walks in truth. So we want to prepare you to defend your faith. That's why we offer things like discipleship, where we're training young Jesus followers to know and obey God's word. And when I say young, I don't mean simply young in age. I mean young in your faith. And we want to be a place where people young in their faith come, and they learn, and they grow, and hopefully they mature. And that's why we have over 50 mentors here that mentor about 75 to 100 people a year in their faith to help them mature so that they can defend their faith. That's why we offer things like School of Bible that runs uh, September through March, where we're in a classroom setting teaching you, equipping you to know God's word, to believe in God's word, so that you can rest assured in the foundation of who our God is, and it helps mature you and grow you. A couple years ago, we had a lady who has recently come to Christ in her 40s. She got discipled, she got baptized, and she wanted a little bit more. 
because she had a son who was not following Jesus, who was an atheist, and she wanted to know a little bit more so she could have some of these conversations with her son. And she walked up to me about a month into school Bible, and she's like, it feels like we're drinking from a fire hydrant, and there's so much, and we're learning so much, and it's all new to me, and yet I'm trying to be a sponge and soak it in, but I'm just not sure, and I'm just encouraging her, keep going, perk, you're doing great, keep moving. She walks up to me two weeks later. She says, you're not going to believe this again. I was on my way to drop my kids off at school, and I was telling them that I wasn't going to be home after dinner that night because I was going to school a Bible, and her oldest, who was the atheist, said, Mom, why are, you, why are you studying so much about this random book that has a bunch of random things said in it? And she goes, did you know that the Bible was actually made up of 66 books over 1,500 years, 39 in the old, 27 in the new, with one cohesive message yet diverse in their authors? And her son goes, no. <laughs> and her younger son, who goes to Ecclesia, says, atheist zero, Christian one. <laughs> And they laughed it off, all of them, so it wasn't antagonistic. But she was like, I was ready to defend my faith. I was ready to defend my faith and make a difference here, right? And so how are we to defend our faith? Uh, it says this idea that with a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Why do you think Peter uses the word hope instead of the gospel or salvation, because that's really what he's talking about here, the death, burial, and resurrection. Because when you or I are suffering, we need hope. Hope helps us get through tough things. Hope helps us look past our current situations. Hope reminds us of Jesus' enduring suffering so we can endure because of our eternal destiny. We can endure our suffering because of our eternal destiny. And that may mean, if we're ready to defend, that may mean we may have to enter into some conflict. That may mean we have to get into some uncomfortable conversations. But the occasion of conflict can turn into the opportunity to be a witness. There are opportunities that are presented when we're set apart, when we look different, and we're in seasons of suffering. These occasions of conflict can turn into opportunities to be a witness. One of our school of Bible teachers a couple years ago was diagnosed with cancer. And it was a very aggressive cancer and a very rapid one. And by the grace of God, he is still with us and he is still here. And uh, he continues to be faithful in his community, faithful to teach his students at the university, and faithful to continue to teach school Bible. But when his students come up to him and ask him, how do you persevere? How do you have this perspective? How do you have this uh, outlook on life? He gets to share the hope that lies within him. God has given him a platform to speak into students' lives at a young age who are making big decisions about the hope of the gospel and the resurrection of Jesus and how that has helped him to persevere and endure. And those are the opportunities that we want to look for and be attentive to as we prepare ourselves to defend. But our posture for how we defend is just as crucial as what we say. He says that we are to do it with gentleness and respect. And too often, what we say gets distorted by how we say it. Like, if we come across arrogant, we're sidelined. If we come across as condescending or dismissive of the person's questions, we lose our platform. We lose our opportunity. Their hearts shut down. They close off because they feel ashamed by what we just said. 
And for somebody to open up about their faith, to open up their questions, there's a vulnerability that has been put out on the table, and we have a responsibility to steward it with gentleness and respect. And this is the posture for how we are to defend our faith. So this is going to help us endure through suffering. Number three, the third way, verse 16, have a good conscience, and this is where we're going to wrap up. Have a good conscience. He says, have a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. The third way we are going to endure our suffering is to have a good conscience. A conscience is a God-given capacity that either accuses or excuses us. It acts to convict us or affirm what we are doing. It's given to every single person in humanity. So if you believe in Jesus or you don't believe in Jesus, you have a conscience. But hopefully, as we follow Jesus, as we read his word, as his word renews our minds, our values become more like Christ's values. You see, because a conscience doesn't guarantee you right and wrong. Your conscience is based upon your value system. So what you value may be different than what I value, so my conscience is going to prick me differently than it's going to prick your heart as well. But hopefully as we follow Jesus and the conviction of the Holy Spirit, our conscience becomes more in line with God's values there. That's why in other areas of scripture, it tells us that we could have an evil conscience or a seared conscience. Look with me at Romans chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, which talks about this idea. Romans chapter 2. Fourteen says this. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Right? So like their conscience is bearing witness, guiding them and directing them. Turn a few pages to the left, Acts chapter 24, verse 16. It says this, So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. So what he's talking about here is that he desires his conscience to be clear, that his conscience is pure, that his conscience is good, because a good conscience gives us peace. And a good conscience gives us peace within, so we can endure the battles without. You see how that links to suffering there? When we have a good conscience, it leads to internal peace, which allows us the opportunity to be able to withstand the battles without. And what battles is he talking about? He's talking about being reviled, being lied about, being slandered, being uh, insulted, being mistreated, and that's gonna help you endure this. There's a, a classic Disney movie by the name of Pinocchio where this, this little puppet is built and his builder decides that he wishes that that little puppet would become a boy. And so one night, this little puppet boy becomes a wooden boy, and he's given a cricket to be his conscience. And that cricket was there to prick and guide him and direct him. But Pinocchio gets led off into Pleasure Island, 
and deceived, and every time his conscience is pricked, the visual representation that his conscience was not clear was his nose would grow. That was the visual representation that he did not have a good, clear conscience. And the reality is, when internally there's an absence of peace, it distracts us from the battle without. But if we have a clear conscience, if our if there's internal peace, then we can withstand the battle that's without us, around us, and we look for those opportunities to defend our faith. We have the evidence of our devotion to Christ, and those things take place, and it puts them to shame, as it says at the end here. Their shame is not good enough itself, but it is the posture of enduring by having a devotion to Christ, defending our faith, and maintaining a good conscience. It will silence their accusations and cause them to consider the gospel. Did you catch that? The most attractive thing for those of us suffering will be how we respond. We will silence them with our character by being an example of gentleness, respect, having the hope, learning to prepare ourselves to defend our faith, and passionately pursuing Christ. These will become attractive to those who don't believe Jesus, who are reviling us, and it will cause them to begin to ask questions about our faith. That's a lot different than what society tells you and I to do. It says cancel people. It says stand up and fight against them. But kindness, gentleness, respect, having hope, a passion for Christ, those are the, what is pictured there that is going to be the greatest testimony and picture for what that looks like. It's a sobering reality, and it's tough to grasp. But if you are here and you are suffering because of cancer, because of a miscarriage, because of a loss of a loved one, because uh, a loss of a job, or whatever that may look like, I want to leave you with this exhortation. Don't grow weary while doing good. What you are doing, serving Christ, being devoted to him, passionately pursuing him, don't grow weary while doing good. What does he say next? For you will reap a harvest. That's not always the perspective you and I have when we're going through suffering. And I can't promise you what that looks like, how that will happen, but this is what I do know. I know people in this church who their enduring suffering has led their children into a stronger relationship with Jesus. That through them enduring their suffering, it has changed their friend's prayer life and their devotion to who God is. It has also, some, you know, in the story of Job, you see there was monetary uh, investment there. There was monetary gain for the world. And that's not promised to everybody, but that is a reality and a possibility there. But my exhortation to you as we wrap up is don't grow weary while doing good, for in due season you will reap a harvest.